I love Jared Allen. Fear the frog. Pow! With the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. <laughs> Jared Allen with authority. This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I am Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, lifelong Cleveland Cavalier fan. And, uh, well, I was hoping that the return to the podcast after my week hiatus for my nuptials would be one that was coming on the heels of a five-game winning streak. And instead, I should have cranked the podcast out yesterday because the Wizards-Cavs game, it was going well. Cavs were playing excellent in the second half. Darius Garland on a little bit of a tear towards the end of the game. Hits a little floating jumper to put him up to 19 points on the game. We take the lead, 93-89 with 30 seconds left. I think, okay, breathe a sigh of relief. We're up by four. There's 30 seconds left. Yeah, they could hit a shot, but then they're going to have to probably foul, and we'll win the game at the foul line. Instead, a turn of events, which, I mean, I could have foreseen. I did say this feels like the nail in the coffin. I prefaced it by saying, I don't want to be premature, a statement that has come out of my mouth far too many times. Over the course of my life. And yet again, twas premature. Kyle Kuzma nails a three-pointer. Cuts the lead to 93-92. Ricky Rubio gets fouled. And unfortunately, after what was a solid game for Rubio, statistically pretty good, I think it was worse than it appeared on paper. But he left one at the line, gave him a chance, down 94-92. Beal drives to the basket finds Kyle Kuzma in the corner who buries a second consecutive three-point jump shot to bring him up to 22 points on the game, but more importantly, to take the lead 95-94, at which point Darius Garland's three-pointer misses. We get into the situation where we have to try to get fouls and try to heave a 70-foot three-point shot in at the end of the game, and there you go. We lost. And the Wizards climbed to the top of the Eastern Conference, now in a tie with the Chicago Bulls at 8-3. But not all is lost. After a four-game winning streak preceding that against the Hornets, the Blazers, the Knicks, the Raptors, the Cavs are sitting relatively pretty at 7-5. Right there with the New York Knicks sitting in front of the Milwaukee Bucks, in front of the Toronto Raptors in front of the Charlotte Hornets. All teams expected to finish ahead of the Cavs. Now, the Hornets were kind of, you know, on the fringes there. The Raptors could have been seen on the fringes. I think after watching that Raptors game during the time that I was away, that is a solid team. Gary Trent Jr., an excellent addition. Of course, we got our first glimpse of the two guys who I'm liking for the Rookie of the Year finalists. Scotty Barnes in Toronto, Evan Mobley, who I have to think over the course of this season, Evan Mobley, while right now I might say that Scotty Barnes has the momentum because he's more of a surprise. He wasn't expected to do as much offensively as he's doing. Evan Mobley is just consistently delivering impactful moments spread over the entire course of the game. This Cavs team greatly overachieving. A big part of this decision, now traditionally, as is noted by, you know, Michael Carter-Williams winning the Rookie of the Year and Malcolm Brogdon winning the Rookie of the Year. Traditionally, 
numbers are going to be the determining factor. But certainly, it can't hurt Evan Mobley's case if the Cleveland Cavaliers do far better than people anticipated. My preseason prediction was 31 wins, and we've dropped some tough ones. The Suns game, that was a tough one, of course. The Lakers game, that was a tough one. This one, I feel pretty good about the Cavs' effort. While they did give it away to Kuzma at the end and seeing his smug, stupid comments, let's see if I can pull that up. I want to see. This was a tweet from Tom Withers. Kyle Kuzma, after beating the Cavaliers, says, it was the fans' fault they lost, really. There was a sign that said, LeBron won Kuzma his ring, and they were just talking too much. Well, I told those guys, without LeBron, Cleveland would be crap. Oh, good burn, Kuzma. You really got him. But here's the thing, and I, I repeated this sentiment on Twitter. Certainly, Kyle Kuzma should be feeling good. He hit two three-pointers that effectively buried us, if in, in, well, in addition to Ricky Rubio missing that free throw. But those two three-pointers taught me a valuable lesson. Don't post prematurely before the game is over that the game is over because the game was not over and it burned me. However, I will say it takes a special kind of asshole to taunt the Cavs about being crap when you did play with LeBron James and you still blew. Now he and Harrell, they're having fantastic seasons. And truthfully, I do kind of root for them. Because I love to see when the Lakers move these guys who just get maligned by the fan base, whether it was Dwight Howard years ago or whether it was Harrell last year or even Drummond now. And, and I am not a Drummond hater. Despite the fact that I know a lot of the Cavs fan base is, I hope for the guy's success. I feel like he ended up becoming the guy that we all turn to to pile on as, well, you're, it's your fault when we lose. And everything that's going wrong can be pinned on your failings as a ball hog and a relatively inefficient big man at that. But I thought he took too much abuse, and now he's on a minimum contract. He's playing big minutes because Joel Embiid is out of the lineup. In fact, have have you seen his numbers? Tuesday, scores 17 points, 20 rebounds, two blocks of steel, does it on 62% from the floor. The previous game, 14 points, 25 rebounds, two blocks, five for nine. Not a black hole at all, and shot a respectable four for six from the free throw line. Now, of course, this is coming due to Joel Embiid being out of the lineup. But on the season, he's a very respectable, now mind you, he's a minimum contract, in just 21 minutes a game, 8 and 11 on 51% shooting. I don't know what more you could ask for, but this wasn't about Andre Drummond. This was about the fact that the Lakers regularly fall into wins. Things like getting Kyle Kuzma at the end of the first round, getting Montrez Harrell to take the mid-level exception money to leave the Clippers to come over there, getting minimum contract buyout Drummond, and then they're destroyed by their fan base for their shortcomings. So I was happy to see Kuzma and Harrell find a home in Washington, a fan base who loves basketball, who has had a difficult time putting together a contender, and now they're getting the best basketball they could out of them. So while it came at the hands of the Cavs, certainly Kyle Kuzma is off to a very good start this season, as is Harrell. Now, while Kyle Kuzma may have been the one who buried the Cavs at the end, the story of this game was two things for the Wizards. One was that Bradley Beal simply could not buy a bucket. He was brutal. 
He was 0 for 7 in the first half, much to the detriment of the Fear the Fro fantasy basketball team. Finished 4 for 19 on the game, and Isaac Okoro made him work for everything he got, which in the end was 13 points, 7 rebounds, 7 assists, and a critical assist to Kyle Kuzma in the corner that proved to be the dagger. But Kuzma himself, 22 points, 5 rebounds, shot 8 of 14 from the floor, and the biggest contribution from him, 6 three-pointers, 6 of 9. Montrez Harrell, well, he was the leading scorer for the Wizards. 24 points, 11 rebounds, and while I think we saw excellent games out of both Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, Montrez Harrell was going back and forth with the both of them and imposing his will and made every single one of his free throws. As did the Washington Wizards, 17 for 17 from the line. The Cavs, 15 for 21. And of course, the most critical of those misses was Ricky Rubio's only miss from the free throw stripe at the end of the fourth quarter. It gave Kuzma the chance to take a one-point lead and then drag his dong right on the heads of the Cleveland Cavalier fan base. Without LeBron, Cleveland would be crap. Now, I would just like to say, after I saw that, the first thing I think is, well, I live in L.A. I watched Kyle Kuzma. I saw him in the playoffs. He sucked last year. So I needed to pull up the numbers to confirm just how much he sucked last year. Let's revisit the 2021 playoffs for the Los Angeles Lakers, where Kyle Kuzma played six games, shot a blistering 29% from the floor. Oh, maybe from three. He was better, you say. Maybe it's just because he took a high volume of three-point shots. Well, he took a reasonably high volume, took four shots a game, shot 17% from three-point land. Okay, so he didn't shoot well from the floor. Maybe he chipped in in other ways. 3.8 rebounds, 1.2 assists, 6.3 points. That's the man talking about how Cleveland was crap without LeBron. While you were crap with LeBron. And he was shipped off for Russell Westbrook, who isn't exactly Mr. Efficient himself. But back to the Cavaliers. I don't want to dwell on this loss for the Cleveland Cavaliers. I want to dwell on the positives that came out of last night. And the first thing I will say is Jared Allen, Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, and Isaac Okoro all deserve some serious props for what they did last night. Evan Mobley, another excellent game, 19 points, 7 rebounds, 7 for 15 from the floor, hit a 3, hit most of his free throws, 4 of 5. Now, Jared Allen was not hitting the free throws. And even statistically, I feel like this game didn't reflect the true impact that he had. He was getting his hands on everything. There was a lot of tip balls that he ended up not pulling in because it was one Jared Allen versus three or four Wizards battling for second chances, battling for rebounds. But at the end of the day, he finished with 13 points, 10 rebounds, four assists, two steals, and two blocks. Now those four assists, Jared Allen has taken a massive leap forward in his court awareness, in his passing. There was one play in particular which summed up how I feel about the Cleveland Cavaliers' front court this season, all in one play. You had Jared Allen block Montrez Harrell, I believe it was. Evan Mobley, he corralled the carom, immediately turned his head, looked up court, fired the ball ahead to Osman, who made the bucket for a transition basket. And Osman has been good this year. I know I really didn't mention him when I was talking about the other players, but 
of course, before this game, shooting a blistering percentage from three-point land and was reasonably effective last night. Now, we're putting him into those positions where without Sexton in the lineup, we could see it swing the other way because he's going to have to start pressing more, but he didn't do that last night. Only took six shots, made three of them, finished with nine points, six rebounds, a couple of steals. Reasonably productive minutes from Osman. But anyway, back to Allen. That type of play from both of these bigs together, when Allen is alongside Mobley, that's what I'm loving so much about this combo at the moment, is Allen is clearly the guy who's going to be banging the glass every single play. But Mobley comes back, he battles with him, and the team rebounding and the team defense at the rim is going to keep us in every single game. Without Sexton, Sexton out of the lineup was noticeable last night. While Okoro was great, in slowing down Beal, and some of that was probably self-inflicted by Beal because he took some just atrocious shots that felt like he was fishing for a foul that he didn't get. But even for as good as Okoro was, that type of instant scoring impact that Sexton brings us will be missed, and we will need more from guys like Osman, and Windler should get a chance. And of course, Rubio is going to have to shoot more than we probably want Rubio to have to shoot. But all that being said, Jared Allen has been incredible over the last week, as noted by his Eastern Conference Player of the Week award, in just finding ways to get more involved in the offense. Because we all knew what our expectations were for Allen on the defensive end. But coming into this season with Lowry Markinen and Kevin Love and Ricky Rubio added, and then, of course, bringing in Evan Mobley, his offensive output, I don't think any of us could really be certain how involved he was going to be. We've seen. Allen aggressive with the ball, looking to create over both shoulders, finding himself in a position when he's on the high block where he seems comfortable not only initiating offense for himself, but finding other guys. So this last stretch where the Cavs have won four of the last five, I think we've seen incredible play from Jared Allen. Something close to this is probably sustainable because Mobley is a willing passer and he's proving that he needs to be paid attention to by whoever's defending him, and to have two big men out there, that's going to benefit both of them. We really haven't had that in the past. We've traditionally had, you know, Tristan with Kevin, or Larry with Kevin, where really it's one offensive big and one defensive big. Now we've got two two two-way bigs and two rim-protecting bigs, and they're going to be supplemented by Lowry and Kevin Love when they're finally back in the lineup but even with them out of the lineup. I think all these fears that people had about their fit, every passing game, those are more and more in the rearview mirror. And that's huge because these guys, all the bigs really, are going to be forced to do more with Sexton out of the lineup. Across the lineup, we're seeing better play from Darius Garland. While he may not be putting up the type of numbers that people anticipated in terms of what kind of leap forward he would make this year, I think what we're seeing is a more efficient Garland and a more confident Garland, and we are seeing an uptick in percentages, jumping from 45% to 48% from the floor so far, and who knows if this sustains over the course of the season, but he's raised his three-point percentage yet again, going from 36 his rookie year to nearly 40 last year to right now shooting 42% from three, and seven assists a game. I expect that number is very sustainable because you've got a chance as the primary guard back there with Sexton out to throw a lot of lobs to Allen 
and to Mobley, and even to Lowry Markinen, which should help you pad those assist numbers. We have much better offense around him. And while the Cavs are banged up, this Sexton situation is interesting in the sense that it opens up an opportunity to see guys who were largely buried in a guard rotation that featured Garland, Sexton, and Rubio. But now, Rubio is going to have to take more shots. While we may not necessarily want that, he clearly is the best option to fill those minutes that Sexton has left behind. And from there, on a night-to-night basis, we'll see what we get from guys like Windler. Windler was excellent in that Portland game. And over the last few games, I think he's been pretty solid to the point where he has an opportunity now, an opportunity he may not have gotten if Sexton had not gone down. But during this stretch without Sexton, we're going to have to find offense from unconventional places. Because while we're more balanced as a team this year in terms of offensive output, Sexton was always the guy when things were starting to slip away or when the momentum was starting to turn, you could look to him as a one-man initiator, a guy who could stop those runs or who could turn the momentum the other way. One stat I did see last night I wanted to bring up, Adam Oslin, who joined me on the podcast last time, he alerted me to this. It was Taz Mellis who tweeted, Garland and Rubio outscore opponents by 16 points per 100 possessions in their 13 minutes per game together. Now that was via Kelsey Russo of The Athletic. So she really should get the credit there. But that's where I saw it was Taz Mellis. I love any stat that positively reflects on the Cavs. But what I think when I see that stat is as much as it's a credit to Garland and Rubio, it's really a credit to the big man play alongside them and how those guys consistently find the bigs for alley-oops, for easy looks, for dump-offs. Those two guards are getting the most out of Allen and Mobley in a way that should see them get excellent scoring. And when you have those guys behind you on the other end, on defense, certainly we're going to see those type of point differentials shift more in the Cavs' favor this season. That's not an indictment on Colin Sexton. Colin Sexton has a role here that for as good as Okoro was last night in holding Beal to 0 for 7 in the first half and just 4 for 19 from the floor, the problem is he may take a guy completely off of his scoring, but he's not going to give you much outside of that. So now we look ahead to a weekend where the Cavs have a back-to-back set where they play host to both the Pistons and the Celtics. The Celtics are kind of an unknown. They have played a relatively tough schedule. They've played two games against the Wizards. They've played against the Bulls already. They did defeat the Miami Heat. So while their record isn't something that blows you away, I think it's kind of early to judge them at 5-6 and six because, well, they got a bad start from Tatum. They got a bad start from Smart. Jalen Brown is now banged up with hamstring issues, but they may just be rounding into form. They've got a new head coach. It could take time to form that identity. But in any case, Friday, Mobley versus Cade Cunningham. We'll get to see that feature. But it'll probably be a lot of Mobley guarding Jeremy Grant, who dropped 35 last night in their win over Houston. Had an excellent night in his own right. And, of course, Kelly Olynyk, Cavalier fan not favorite, will be taking on the Cavs as well. They could head into next week. The Cavs get the Celtics twice in a row, and then we see matchups against the Nets twice against the Warriors. They have to take on the Suns again before Thanksgiving. But they've got a tough slate over the course of the next couple weeks. The Bucks, the Jazz, the Wizards, the Heat, 
the Warriors, the Nets twice, the Suns. None of those games are going to be give me. So as good as we feel at 7-5 and five right now, the real barometer is coming up. If we can get this winning streak going again, you have to feel pretty good about the Cavs November if they can notch off a few more victories, knowing that they're probably going to suffer some losses in the latter part of the month. Now to some of the stories around the NBA. The biggest one I wanted to touch on was this jokic Markeith Morris dust-up that happened just a few days ago. The Nuggets running away with a game against Miami. In transition, Jokic puts his hands above his head looking to throw the ball ahead, and Markeith Morris takes a cheap shot, lays into his ribs, then tries to turn his back and walk away as if nothing happened. Of course, Jokic did not let that slide, and he trucked him from behind, and Markeith was rolling around on the ground like he was hurt, missed a game for whiplash. And Jokic got suspended for a game. Well, no suspension came for Markeith Morris. Well, I don't agree with that. I don't think it's right to let these guys antagonize truly great players like Jokic and expect no retribution. We see guys like Marcus Morris, Markeith Morris, Jay Crowder, generally speaking, every player that I hate in this league, who are lauded for being this physical irritant who battles hard and he just fills a role and he brings that toughness and grit, which to me has always just been coded language for they suck in most other aspects of the game. And they're out there for four to five physical, borderline cheap fouls and whatever offense they can give you on a night-to-night basis. Sometimes Crowder hits threes. Sometimes Morris hits threes. But if you look at their percentages, not that consistently. And when that team succeeds, they're praised but they're just co-opting that praise from guys like Jimmy Butler, from guys like DeAndre Ayton and Devin Booker and Mikhail Bridges, who are far more impactful, in my view, in the overall fortunes of the team. But people love these guys. I hate nearly every one of them. I don't hate Markeith Morris, I should say that. I've always found him the much more palatable twin between the Morris twins. Marcus Morris, absolute bucket of shit. Same with Jay Crowder. And after Jokic, flattened his brother, Marcus Morris tweeted something to the effect of, oh, well, you hit a guy with his back turned. Noted. Mind you, noted cheap shot artist Marcus Morris. Tried to hurt Luka Doncic, slides under him, uh, screams in the face of Tristan Thompson while he's on the ground. Incredible front running over the years from Marcus Morris against the Denver Nuggets themselves. Whole lot of talking when they were up 3-1. Not a peep as he disappeared as the Nuggets cruised to victory 4-3 over them in that big comeback that took the Clippers out of the playoffs. So no love lost from the fear of the fro end for Jay Crowder, for Marcus Morris, for Markeith Morris. I don't even know why I lump Crowder in here. I just view him as the same type of player. Biggest issue with this is I'm with Shaq and I'm with Charles Barkley. You hit me, don't turn around. Don't turn around, Brad Miller, because I'm swinging. Don't, <laughs> do not turn around. You're either going to take it in the front or take it in the back. As a big guy, when, when a little guy hits you, you got to touch him on the back. I have no problem with what the Joker did. I actually like it as a big guy. You got these guys fouling on you, hanging on. He hit him. Unintentional, I mean, intentional, unnecessary roughness. So what do you do as a big guy? You go hit him back. Morris started it. Let's get first. Joker retaliated. And then people say, well, he hit him in the back. Well, if you hit me, I'm with Shaq on it. Let me tell you something, Ernie. If you hit me, you better not turn your damn back because I'm coming back at you. You can't hit somebody and turn your back. You just, that's like Kenny. 
It's the most mild-mannered, nice dude in the world. If somebody hit him, are we swinging? We swinging. If you take a cheap shot, expect retaliation. And the fact that these scrubs are allowed to take cheap shots at star players who, if hurt, will completely change the fortunes of a team, I'm all for retaliation. I'm not a person who's going to sit here and say, I don't advocate violence. In some situations, I do. Guys like Markeith Morris and Marcus Morris, if they take these cheap shots and they go unpunished, like they essentially did in this situation, it only emboldens them to do it again. And while Jokic is a tank and he didn't get hurt in this case, it certainly can happen. Nobody cares if Marcus Morris and Markeith Morris are hurt or out of the lineup. They're basically meaningless role players. But if Jokic falls, that team might not even be in playoff contention if he misses a lot of time because they're without Murray, they're without Porter Jr. So I'm all for star players enforcing rules that really the league should be the ones enforcing. They should have suspended Markeith as well because he started this thing. Jokic responded. But if you're not going to penalize a guy like that for a cheap shot, if you're just going to call it a common foul, you're going to put it in the star's hands to have to essentially adjudicate the situation for themselves. And that's what Jokic did. And while he walked it back in post-game comments, bravo, Jokic, flatten the next one. Hit Markeith so hard that Marcus would feel it. But to hear them talk about, oh, noted, your back was turned. And that's the other storyline that I find ridiculous. People keep saying stuff about, oh, Jimmy Butler's tough. I wouldn't fight with Jimmy Butler. What has he done? Has he gotten fights on the court? All I've seen is him screaming at teammates, uh, lifting weights in hotel rooms. Like, I get it. He's an incredible competitor and an intense competitor. But he's not doing anything to a guy who's over seven feet and over 250 pounds. Jimmy Butler is not going to do anything in that situation. He had a chance. He didn't do anything until they were on opposite ends of the floor, and then there was a lot of screaming and posturing. But a little more respect has to be paid to that Serbian monster, because while he may look doughy and soft, still, he's a massive man. And I've seen it when he went at Jay Crowder, and I've seen it when he handled Markeith Morris. Guys who do that, I don't want somebody to play cheap during the game, but if somebody plays cheap with you, take it upon yourself. And Giannis, the nicest guy in the world, I wouldn't fault him either. If somebody takes a cheap shot at you, you're the only one who's really going to look out for you because the NBA just punishes the response more so than the one who initiated it. Was Jokic's hit dirty? Yes. But was it delightful? 100%. Fear the fro endorsed. Fuck off, Morris. The last subject I wanted to touch on was the Scottie Pippen story. Now, he's out hawking a new book and just trashing Michael Jordan as a selfish player. He clearly is still upset about how he was presented in The Last Dance. And I'm with him on that. I should say this. The Last Dance, that was not a documentary. That was just a framing of the best positive version of Michael Jordan that you could put out there. And I do understand Pippen and his teammates probably feeling that they were disrespected in that quote-unquote documentary because they were. However, what he's doing now is never going to get him any type of positive momentum in the press. It may sell books, and maybe that's enough for him, because the damage is already done in terms of how he was presented in The Last Dance and being perceived as selfish and the way that he sat out of the game being highlighted and all those things. But he has to understand the world that we live in. Nobody is going to rally against Michael Jordan. He probably has as many fans of him who never saw him play 
as he does fans who actually lived through that era of basketball. For no other reason than everybody who hates any present-day player who was a threat to his legacy, whether that's LeBron or Kevin Durant or Kobe Bryant or whoever, there will always be people who just blindly support Michael Jordan, and it doesn't really even have to do with Michael Jordan. It just has to do with, well, this is what we can latch on to to discredit player A or player B. Because this isn't the 90s where people appreciated greatness more so than they looked for ways to poke holes in it. This is a different generation. Players now live in this era where they're not just judged on court. They're also judged by their off-court comments, their views on societal issues, all these other things. So LeBron has plenty of people who disliked him for non-basketball reasons, but that tends to bleed into the commentary and the criticisms and the reasons why people would rally against his on-court accomplishments. It's always been an annoyance of mine. It's not all that different in some ways from what we're seeing with Colin Sexton now. Colin Sexton has a passionate group of Colin Sexton supporters, many of them. It's not mutually exclusive. A lot of people support Colin Sexton and they support the Cavs. But more and more over the past two seasons, we've seen people fall in the camp of supporting Colin Sexton so ferociously that they almost delight in the failings of whoever his backups are. Rubio has a bad night, and it's, well, see, this is why we need Sexton, or Okoro doesn't score a lot, and it's like, well, he's no Colin Sexton. That I find to be the most annoying sect of the fan base. Root for both. Do I want Colin Sexton to succeed? Yes. But I also know trying to convert these people who are diehard Sexton fans but seem to delight in when the Cavs fail without him it's just a waste of energy. And Pippen should take note of how he's being presented in the media, even if his comments have some truth to them. Because you're never going to win this battle. It's never going to be anything but people dragging you for all your failings and ignoring what may be valid points. It's decades ago. These people never saw you play. What do you care about the opinions of this new generation that they don't realize how great of a player you were? The people who saw it know how great of a player Scottie Pippen was. And they know that documentary was not a, it wasn't a documentary in the truest sense of the word. It was basically a fan piece that was loosely framed around history, but presented in a way which reflected most favorably upon Michael Jordan, who I'm not trying to discredit him here. I'm just saying I understand why Pippen was upset, but outside of maybe selling a few books and trying to cash in on what was your name being dragged through the mud, you're just keeping the cycle going at this point. Let it go. So that's it for today's Fear the Fro podcast. I'm sorry. Sorry I ended my wedding celebration because it appears to have led to a loss. But we need to get a new win streak going. We need you, whoever's listening to this, to follow the Fear the Fro podcast at Fear the Fro Pod on Instagram and Twitter and to subscribe, to review, to like the podcast. I would appreciate any support you give. Once again, my name, Bob Schmidt. The voice of Fox Sports Radio, a lifelong Cleveland Cavalier fan, and I will be back with another episode of the Fear the Fro podcast soon. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro it's over. podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.